Coming strong with another edition of Longhorn Blitz with Horns 24-7. I am Jeff Howe, and let's not waste any time and get right into it because we got a lot to continue to unpack from the end of the Texas season, the end of the college football season, and starting to look ahead to 2024. Let me bring in the rest of the team. He is the master of the soundboard, the drop machine extraordinaire, our lead research analyst on Longhorn Blitz, and a daily fantasy guru. He is Matt Butler. Matt, are you, are you okay over there? Uh, yes, sir. Doing pretty well. Okay. Y'all heard my mic fall and my frustrations get let out. It's good to know. Uh, a man who always has things clear and good to go at Casa de Babers. Uh, by the way, Rod, how's uh, how's fatherhood as you get further along into this thing? It's great, man. It's awesome. I mean, something new every day, right? New challenge every day to figure out. But uh, now we're having a good time. She's actually a good baby, too. Man. She, good. she sleeps, which a lot of babies don't do. So I, nice. I don't have that to worry about. Actually. The godsend. Uh, yep. So Rod, at this point in his life, he's like the chicken, man. He just wakes up to a new world every day. Uh, he <laughs> he wears many hats. You can find him on many platforms. You can find him on the horn. You can find him at on Texas football. But for the purposes of this podcast, he is our lockdown corner here on Longhorn Blitz. Lifetime Longhorn, 2002 UT All-American, 2002 semifinalist for the Jim Thorpe Award. Fourth-round draft choice of the New York Giants back in 2003. Spent his NFL career with the Giants, Lions, Bears, Bucks, Broncos, and a year with the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL when he was done with football. He got himself back to Austin, Texas, and the 40 Acres, where he earned his degree. Whenever that T-ring comes back in, we will make sure he wears it proudly. Nevertheless, he is a card-carrying member of DBU, and when you get that All-American honor recognized by the NCAA, they make sure you get one of those black cards. Number 21 in your program. Number one in your hearts, Rod Babers. I appreciate the intro, brother, as always. Rod, I want to start the podcast as we, again, got us some Sugar Bowl residuals slash end of the season slash what did the the national championship game tell us about Texas? I want to, I want to give you some flowers. Are you prepared to receive flowers this early in the podcast, Rod? Hey, man, I'll, I'll take them anywhere I can get them. Okay. You told me many years ago. And it's something that I've tried to, in my evolution as a an amateur football theorist, apply to my train of thought. You can mask things, you can mask deficiencies on offense to a certain extent with a great scheme or great quarterback and some combination thereof. But man, on defense, you win with players. And if you don't have players on defense at some point, you're going to get exposed. And... Texas didn't get exposed in the way that some teams have gotten exposed on the big stage, but I think we saw you're probably an elite edge guy and you're probably an elite corner away from having a a true legitimate bona fide, like national championship caliber, well-rounded defense. You had some great pieces this year. Don't get me wrong, but that's really where your deficiencies I think showed up. And the more I think about it, Rod, when I look at, kind of how the Washington defense matched up with the Michigan offense last night. I, I do feel like the Texas defense was a much better matchup for the Michigan offense, totally but, agree. but similar, similar to the sugar bowl, Michigan had the better, more aggressive, more impactful defensive front. They had the best corner on the field and it wasn't even close with Will Johnson. And when you've got an elite lockdown type corner and did they have one single guy like Aiden Hutchinson or David Ajabo on this defensive line? No, but they had a bunch of dudes that were really solid, really good. Um, 
that's going to win you a lot of games, man. And I just keep going back to it. That's where Michigan was better than Washington. That's where Washington was better than Texas. And quite frankly, Rod, that's where Texas was better than a lot of teams they played this season up up until that Sugar Bowl game. Yep. I mean, it just showed me because I agree with everything that you said. I think it showed me that Texas was ahead of schedule. Um, and when when I say Texas ahead of schedule, I mean, they just haven't had time to complete their roster construction uh, for, at every position. And, you know, the biggest hole in the roster right now, at least it was exposed this season, was in the defensive backfield, right? You hadn't really addressed it yet. You hadn't infused it with that that, that high-end level talent. Yet Derek Williams was one of the starts, and then Malik Muhammad, those guys were young, right? You're talking about freshmen out there that were considered the – the class are the some of the best players in your secondary. Terrence Brooks is even uh, still a young player. So I think when they get done with that overhaul, which in this recruiting class, they're recruiting with five defensive backs. Yeah, That's part of it, right? That's that, that's why it was the, one of the last areas, <laughs> last phases of roster construction for them. They also hadn't recruited enough elite pass rushers or any, really. Um, I, I think Ethan Burke's a, a good pass rusher, but I don't know if he's going to be elite. I think he's a good edge uh, defender. I don't know if he's going to be an elite pass rusher, though. You can not necessarily be – like, you have good players in your secondary. They're not coverage specialists, yeah. right? And that's, there's a difference. You can be a good coverage specialist like Robbie was, like I was, and not necessarily be a great football player. But when it comes to coverage, I was elite in that category. So that's what they're looking for more of that now. And that's why this recruiting class is going to be so important for the, the the end of the overall roster construction. They got a lot of DBs, five of them in the recruiting class, uh, six with Makuba in the transfer portal. You go look at Colin Simmons coming in. He's your elite edge rusher coming off the edge, right? He's that guy that got Trey Moore as a, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a urgent yeah. Uh, uh, impact now guy from the edge because they know they need that because that was exposed also versus Washington. So when you, you know, in, a, in the Big 12 title game, none of that was exposed because you were far and away, in my opinion, the best team in the Big 12. Even with the loss to Oklahoma, I think that was just a matchup thing, right? Football is about matchups. But I think far and away, you were the best team in the Big 12. And I think that showed in the Big 12 title game how you smacked <laughs> Oklahoma State around. Yeah. But when you got to the elite levels of play, because they're ahead of schedule, nobody really expected them. Some of you, some of y'all did, but that's just more about homerism. But <laughs> in terms of hitting the college football playoff, they were just a little ahead of schedule there. And but but that's give give Sark and the coaches credit, give the players credit. They all got to their, they all achieved and kind of hit their their ceiling as a squad. All right, and, and that's really hard to do. Even I was played on teams that won eleven games, and I don't think we hit our ceiling as a squad. I think this team did. They ended up being one of the best four teams in all the nation. I think they finished number three. But them being ahead of schedule and not having enough cycles of the of acquisition to to overhaul all those different positions, they ended up with two key areas of of kind of of subpar, lackluster play on defense, pass rushing, and coverage. And those two things were exposed versus Washington. You go look at Michigan. Michigan's been at this thing for what? And Jim Harbaugh's been there for nine years or so, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And they've been they've been they played in the college football playoff like three times. So they've gotten to the point where there are no holes in their roster construction. They've addressed everything. They've addressed everything, and even the depletion of of talent, which another 
there's another ch challenge that Ross that Sark's got to deal with now in roster construction. You're about to lose seven, eight guys to the league. Now, this is a more money, more problem scenario when you're building your program the right way and when you're achieving uh, to a certain level, you're supposed to have that many guys coveted by the NFL, draftable prospects, but you also need to be reloading, right? You need to be uh, having talent that steps up that's just as good, if not better, than those players who are being drafted. That's what happened when I left the 40 Acres. The guys that took my spot, like the Huff Daddies, the Cedric Griffins of the world, they were better than Rod B. <laughs> mm -hmm. They were better than Rod, even though I was damn good. I was all-conference player, all-American. They were still better than me, higher upside guys. Now, is Sark at that point? Because if you're at that point, then now, now you're cooking with, with gasoline. But if you're not, then that's going to be another phase of roster construction, another challenge that he's got to overcome. When you are developing at a really high level, when you are winning at a high level, then the NFL is going to pluck your talent. When they do, you got to be able to replace that talent and not have a drop-off and not have regression. We don't know if Sarah's going to do that yet. We assume he's going to do it because he's been recruiting a lot of classes, but you're still going to have holes in that roster because Michigan did until they got well, to the, the ninth year. Right, yeah. Jim Harbaugh's best team, and every other team that does that, Georgia, you know, whether it was, you know, they had probably some holes in their roster until they broke through. So mm -hmm. that's what the college football playoff now just expanded, but it's still going to represent you won't be the best team in the country until you have no hole, no longer have any holes on your roster. And Texas still had a couple, they still had a couple, and I think that's what ultimately will come back to haunt you in those big games. Yep, and you hit on it right there, Rod, when just talking about just the overhaul of an entire roster and how much sort of time it takes to fill every single necessity that your program was lacking previously. And, like, Michigan's a great example. Like, it took almost, like, him surviving a rebuild because you had that 2020 year when they went two and four and there had been issues from time to time but he's been able to accumulate a roster over nine years and Harbaugh was able to add on in the areas that were deficient. Texas this year, they had a really good roster overall, but you just had a few glaring holes that over time you might be able to stop gap and fill, but you mass sort of with your efficiency. Texas had some really, really good areas where you were so successful that it could actually, you know, make up for some of your weaknesses. So if you're able to finally fill out the roster from point A to point B, all 85 spots and get it sort of specialized to your guys, because you still had some guys that were previous regime guys. So it takes time normally in Texas maybe was a little bit ahead of schedule when you look at the overall results. But when you talk about like, say, roster building, not necessarily fully ahead of schedule because it takes at least a couple of recruiting classes. You can fix and plug those holes quicker with the, the way we've seen players like Quinn or A.D. Mitchell or really, really good top tier players come in via the portal. And you can get that done quicker. And we're getting it already on the DB side. It happened even last year when you needed a good main coverage guy. You went and got Gavin Holmes. But you aren't able to necessarily put it all into the piece that can become elite in that three-year window. But when you have certain aspects that are so strong, like, say, a dominant run game, or you have some great scheme with some great skill makers and a quarterback that can move the ball up and down the field and not have to worry about those third and short situations, or when you get into, you know, tough scenarios inside the red zone, certain areas where you need to have a full roster and ability to make every single play on both sides of the ball, Texas didn't necessarily have that roster filled out one to 85. You know, I, I think about teams, Alabama's the outlier because dude, I, I Rod, I've told you this before, Matt, I've told you this before. 
in my lifetime, I never thought I would see, especially with how college football is, how, how it functions today and how it's structured today. I never thought I'd see somebody do what Bobby Bowden did over that 15 year run he had at Florida State, where I think they had, what was it, like 15 straight years where they finished in the top five of the eight people, won mm-hmm, a couple of national four. championships. Yeah. Um, and Nick Saban's not only done that, but he's done more than what Bobby Bowden did in the same amount of time. So Alabama's the outlier, but you look at these other teams, Rod, you mentioned it a minute ago, you know, Georgia got there in Kirby's second year. And I think you could even tell, even though they were really freaking talented, there were still some areas where they needed, I think the secondary was one for Georgia. And there was a couple other areas where they still needed to, to find some things. Wide receiver was one of those pieces. Um, They got there in 17, man, it took, it took Kirby four years to get back. They didn't get back to the playoff until 21, but when they got back, I think we can all agree those Georgia teams in 21 and 22 were about as completed teams as we've seen in the playoff era. Yeah. Uh, you know, Michigan, Matt, you mentioned Harbaugh. You know, Harbaugh had his second year. They were a one-loss team uh, going to, going into Columbus to play Ohio State at the end of the regular season, two versus three. They lose that game in double overtime. And then after that, you know, they, they lose their bowl game to Florida State, so they finish 10-3, and three, and then it's like 8-5, and 10-3, 9-4. And then, like you said, you know, during the COVID year, they go 2-4, and four, and – Really, what it was, Jim Harbaugh. I heard, you know, Kirk Herbstreit and even Reese Davis talking about it last night. It was more of him just kind of realizing, hey, instead of, you know, trying to run the spread and be somebody I'm not, be true to myself and turn things over to Sharon Moore in this offensive line. And they've been outstanding ever since. I mean, 12 and 2, 13 and 1, and a 15 and 0 this year, year this year for the national championship by getting back. Rod, kind of what, what made us many years ago kind of fall in love with Jim Harbaugh football to begin with, which was he's playing smash mouth football, but doing it with a little bit of kind of new school flair, but it's still that, that gritty grimy style that, you know, he was winning with, with the 49ers and that can work in football today. Uh, that's essentially what Michigan got back to. They got back to focusing on the lines of scrimmage and dominating that way. We saw that in the game last night. And I say all that to say this, man, it, Sark, I feel like Sark is on the right trajectory. I don't feel like this is a house of cards. I don't feel like this is a one-time thing, but it's good that you got here when you did, knowing that, number one, in the semifinal game, you didn't play your A game. You played about a C to C plus game. And, man, if if, if you can add those few pieces that you need, we're talking about a Texas team that can can legitimately – get on a, a neutral field, a road environment, home, wherever it is, play in the damn parking lot, and literally be able to hang for four quarters with anybody in the country. Yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, you, even with the holes that we just discussed, right, with the yeah. with the roster, this is just Sark and his staff showing us they can develop talent because a lot of these guys are talent they inherited, uh, but also showing the guys that they got early on, like an Xavier Worthy, those guys, Quinn Ewers, right? They they became the the the, the identity, all right, of mm-hmm. the offense. I could even throw out there, and I I threw out this hypothesis on the show this morning. If Texas had Jonathan Brooks healthy, they win it all. Like mm-hmm. I just yeah. that simple. I could throw it out there because I think it solved a lot of your problems. I think Sark in that <laughs> game, first of all, 
Sarin may have run the football more, right, after he runs the pony package and they score the first touchdown. Two fumbles. He might run it more with a Jonathan Brooks in there. And in the third quarter, yes, obviously, instead of the fumbles with Jaden Blue and with Cedric Baxter, younger backs, Jonathan Brooks may not fumble like that. So you're in a better position there to run the football and sort of kind of dominate that game and control the game. And even in the red zone, Jonathan Brooks helps you a little bit more because I just think he's got a better all-around back, even though they've struggled in short yardage that way. But in the red zone, just not necessarily short yardage, but when you've got a little bit of space in that high red, as he calls it, I think a guy like Jonathan Brooks helps you a little bit more because of how well-rounded his skill set is. He can block, he can catch out of the backfield, and he's a really uh, potential uh, lethal runner, especially at the second level. So I, and he's, a, he's a guy that breaks a lot of runs too, right? Breaks mm-hmm. long runs. And against Washington, there were some holes there, and, and there were some big runs by the young running backs, by Jaden Blue and by Susan Baxter. You can argue with, Jay, with Jonathan Brooks, those might be bigger runs. Bigger yeah. chunk yardage runs because of how good he was at it. So I, I get, I could throw out there just that alone would have helped Texas. But getting to my point of how close they are, I mean, if you that that guy would have made a huge difference for you. You didn't have him, and I think Texas actually felt we felt his loss the most in that national title. Oh, sorry, in the semifinal in yeah. the basketball play game. I think that's where you felt his loss the most. I don't think we felt it actually Texas at all in the Tech game or in the the, the Iowa State game. Are in the Oklahoma State definitely game not the Big Twelve championship game. game. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you 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 felt it there. I think you felt it in the national title. I think that's where he's like, oh, an elite levels of play, an elite player like that not being available for Texas made all the difference. Yeah, and Jonathan Brooks, two hundred and thirty eight career rushes and only one fumbled in that K State game. So that would have definitely probably been something that could have changed the landscape of that game. I mean, you got great impacts from Blue and Baxter, but like if you look across the board now, it's like pretty crazy to think Texas in back to back years will have the number one running back on the board. And, you know, Jay Brooks had those metrics coming out, but in such a small sample, he was just behind such a big time running back room and it sort of just speaks to what we've been talking about about Sark's ability to develop the roster and players on this roster that stood up meteorically this season and you can look on the defensive side of the ball and the offensive side of the ball so it's a a good sign for the future but you still have a lot more holes to fill when you get so many big time talents going to the NFL you know Rod to me the more I think about this run game issue and you know, I even give my man Chip Brown credit. Chip's column today is after watching the headline is after watching Michigan run all over Washington. It's hard not to wonder what if regarding Texas. That's true because, like we t- we talked about last week on the podcast, like uh, the 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 one observation that I remember even during the game, I'm like, man, Washington's not defending the RPO; they're defending the PO. They're just willing to let Texas run the football. I think you hit the nail on the head, Rod. That's the thing I keep going back to with Jonathan Brooks go have the scenario play out the exact same way it does. I think in a big game, Sark trusts the track record that Jonathan Brooks has established probably more than he trusts to put the running game, just put it on the shoulders of Jaden blue and or CJ Baxter. Not that he thinks they're bad players or anything. Cause he started CJ Baxter over Jonathan Brooks to start the year. And Jaden blue has earned carries. But in a big game, when you need your big-time players to step up, I think getting Jonathan Brooks lathered up early, letting him work, and then you know we've seen him time and again this year come through with big runs, like you said. I think, to me, that would have been the difference in Sark's patience. I think it would have just been a matter of 
he's more patient. He's more willing to take advantage of what Washington is giving him, even when they got down by double digits because of his confidence in Jonathan Brooks, his trust in Jonathan Brooks. Yeah. No, I, I just think it would have, you can argue it would have influenced the game plan overall. All right. Against yeah. Washington. Um, but yeah, after the first quarter, what is seven, seven by, you know, seven, seven, I think at the end of the first quarter in that game uh, versus Washington, it was clear Texas could run the ball and that their passing game was a little off. And I think Sark waited till halftime to recognize that and make the adjustment. And by then, and he didn't know this, it was going to be too late because mm-hmm. you didn't have a five plays in the third quarter. And one of them was a fumble. <laughs> so, I mean, that was, that was no time for you to make the adjustment. You didn't get a chance to execute the adjustment that you had made, which I think was them for to run the ball. And by then, they score, you get down double digits, and then, of course, you have to abandon the run and just get back in the game. So I understand that, but I just think that's why the adjustments, I think, for Sark, the challenge will be for him. When you recognize it, adjust quicker. Yes. Go now. You talked about this, Jeff, when we analyzed the game. I think he saw it. He saw it at halftime and discussed it, and maybe he thought there will be time for it. But after the first quarter, it was clear you were averaging more yards per rush than yards per attempt. The game Mm -hmm. was tied 7-7. And you allowed Washington, I think they had almost 10 minutes time of possession, even in the second quarter. That should have been you. You, Matter of fact, you should have did to Washington what they did to you in the third quarter. You In the second yeah. quarter. You should have just dominated time of possession. They should have had one damn possession and maybe been able to score one touchdown. And what That's you know one fewer touchdown than they would have had in the game overall. You should have been able to choke the life out of their possessions. And you didn't. And I think a lot of it's because you were passing first and then getting penalties and then getting sacked. And, and then you got behind the chains. Once you're behind the chains, you can't run because running's not a threat anymore. You got to, if you're going to run, you got you do have to kind of start with run. That's why defenses know on early downs, I am stopping the run because if you throw on early downs and you, you get an incompletion, Oh, that's money. That goes back to the old, the late great DKR quote, right? Uh, there are three things can happen when you throw the ball and two of them are bad. You yeah. get completion on that first down, no matter what it is, then you're almost in disastrous. You, you, you're teetering. You're all right. You're careening toward disaster on third and long if you don't get positive yards on second down. And that's why a lot of coaches revert to, all right, I got to run the ball on second and on second and ten because I got to make sure I get something to give myself a third manageable. But then you make yourself predictable. <laughs> but then if you throw on second and ten and you don't get it, then you're in the worst possible situation. You're in third yeah. and ten, which Texas was in third and double digits, what five times in that game versus Washington. So that first down is so crucial. If you gonna throw, get it right. Yes. You're gonna throw, get it right. Let it be a long handoff extension of the run game because when you get it wrong on first down, those odds start slowly flipping in the defense's favor. And it did that on so many possessions against Texas in the first half. And that's why a lot of coaches are like, no, nah, I'm going to run the ball on first down, see what I get. And I think Washington, they like I said, they were they were playing the man and not the hand. They knew Sark. There's no way Sark's going to just hand his ball off on first down. That's He don't do that. That's not in his nature. He's just scorpion, scorpion and the frog. He's never been that guy. And by the way, I'm not saying he needs to be that guy. But I do think situationally, matchup to matchup, certain games, they cause for you as a coach to break tendency. They cause for you to, as a coach, to step outside of your comfort zone. And I think Sark at – after that first quarter, I think I think he saw it. I just don't think he acted on it. Yep, and you know I think it's something that's worth pointing out because like when the Brooks injury happened, it was sort of just like it was in the middle of the season. You know, we had a week to week situation. We were talking about games that we didn't necessarily zoom in on how impactful 
Brooks's season was this year. But when you look at it, you know, post Alabama, which was after Baxter's injury, Brooks averaged literally over 20 carries per game in a Sark offense. And in every single game, there wasn't one game where he had less than five yards per carry. That was the basement of what you were getting from him. You had some games where he's averaging 7.8 or 10 yards a carry. But when you're talking about, you know, you're getting 20 from this dude, you know, he's getting you a five a pop. And then he had multiple games with more than 10 missed tackles forced. He had 10 missed tackles forced against Kansas State. 11 against Wyoming. He had other multiple games. He had seven against OU, or excuse me, eight against OU, seven versus Houston, seven versus Baylor. Like, his impactful seat, he was literally on the way to winning the Doak if he would have been able to finish out the season. He was right there with any other running back in the country. And when you finish out his career, like, he finishes with 6.2 yards per carry. Like, that was a mark me as a little kid that's Ricky that's exactly what Ricky set the school record with until Bijan broke it but to have a guy that could come in and replace those dudes he averaged for a career 4.13 yards after contact just so impactful and losing somebody like that in week 10 of your season or week 11 that's a really big deal yeah I uh I want to go back to the Texas defense though and and I you know I was doing my show today, and I, this is kind of where I was going. And my my man uh, Kieran uh, at Care Bear Kieran on on all his social media platforms. Kieran's got great Texas content. Uh, Kieran mentioned, "Hey, having your best players at premium positions it, that that's paramount." And and I agree, Rod. We Matt, we spent a lot of time talking about premium positions, and to go back to to where we were a, a few minutes ago. I just started looking at the premium positions and okay, where does Texas have, is there a top 10 type player on the roster at those positions? Is there one at quarterback? Absolutely. Was there one at uh, at left tackle? Absolutely. Was there one at wide receiver? You probably had two of them at wide receiver. So you were good there. The throw in Jatavian Sanders as tight end as a bonus. Uh, Defensive tackle, we're leaning more towards considering that a premium position. Did you have one of your best 10 players on the roster there? Without question, you had two of them. Did you have one at edge? Probably not. Did you have one at corner? No. Did you have one at safety, which I consider a premium position? Nobody else does. Um, Didn't have one there. So, again, not to belabor the point, but, um, I mean, we're talking about how close Texas was to winning a national championship, yet still looking at the holes. Rod, I, I say all that to say this. I don't know how you can be a Texas fan right now and not feel really optimistic, even the most pessimistic, glass-half-empty Texas fan, how they can't look at that this and feel really good about the future. Um, no, I agree. Well, I think the way you wouldn't feel good about it is if they're losing all those guys. Right. And, you know, how do you exactly? So the challenge is, and I think they're doing a good job based on recruiting and we've seen the development. So there's no reason to think that they won't just, you know, put the obviously put those guys in a similar position to be successful. And I think they will. But I will say because the culture is good. But those guys, those guys had a certain uh, football character yes. about them. A lot of those guys. Um, and I don't think we have appreciated that enough. Um, the guys like, you know, hell, even the guys like Jay Witt, but Jalen Ford, who I 
who I've talked to mm-hmm. and come to appreciate his football character a little bit more. And, um, you know, hell, I don't even know if Jade Barron's leaving, but even guys like X-Men and how tough guys like X-Men are. Um, so, I, I, yeah, you know, so I, yeah, I foundation. Think, yeah, like, so I, I do think, you know, just you brought up Kirby Smart and how, you know, Kirby Smart proved that he could coach because he took a lot of players who had underachieved that he inherited, developed those guys, and then got to the college football playoff. I think that's what Sark's done. That's the first phase. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, I think now what Kirby did was have to fill all those holes after that and also deal with the challenge of if I am a developing talent like I should be because I'm getting all the high-end talent and we're competing at a really high level, they gonna, my, my guys are going to be here two years and they're out. Yeah. All right, they're going to be here two years and out. I, I, I mean, I got to learn how to build really on the fly with these new, really talented guys with a lot of upside who are unproven commodities and put them in and plug and play. And that means you don't have holes in your roster and the transfer portal helps you with that. See, but that's the next challenge for this staff. They just, you're going to have maybe a record number of guys drafted potentially. How, what, what happens to the roster after that? And are you ready to, and I think most of the expectations are really high for Texas, Mm -hmm. even in the SEC, higher level of competition. Are you ready to just replace those guys, plug and play with talent that's just as good, if not with a higher upside and get the yeah, same activity. That's a challenge. I think they can do it. I think they've proven like they can develop talent and they can, they're bringing in high end talent. Uh, what's not to what, what's, what's lost in the disconnect, right? What, why wouldn't they be able to, 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 to achieve that? I think they will. My point is that's the next challenge. So that if you were questioning anything, that would be the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we when we looked at last year's team, you know, we sort of had the questions about the D line, but then we saw how they were able to sort of piecemeal together without, say, one standout dude. We were like, man, Texas, one of the best D lines in the entire Big 12, and I got no worries headed into next season. And then we saw how great that D line was this year, especially with some guys taking steps forward. So we've seen, you know, their ability to piecemeal together what they have into something something functional or be able to develop these guys to the next level where you've seen like say you know the talent that texas has right now because there's going to probably be a void at receiver especially when you consider a guy like jt sanders and like you know jeff when you'd mentioned you know if texas has a you know, top end edge rusher. And that was one of the glaring holes last year is like, well, Texas maybe could have, but at the time Sark needed his pieces on offense. Yeah. And was like, no, JT, you stay over here at tight end. Understandably so. But Texas getting that type of uh, top end player, but had to sort of, you know, piece it together where they could to make it work the first two years. Now that we have a few classes stacking up, maybe be able to see that talent and be able to reload because it looks like wide receivers reloading. D-tackle, I would say there's going to be some questions going forward, but you like the way that Texas has put together recruiting classes. We've seen just running back after running back, each one Texas has plugged in has been very productive, so that isn't going to be as worrisome. We've already talked about the help that's coming on the back end for the DBs. You know, linebackers, the one area in modern football you say you don't have to worry about the most, but you were able to get something out of Jalen Ford when at the time when he was, you know, a 
player nobody had heard of, Texas had questions about linebackers. So it's good to see that you've been able to turn all these players into these things and fix these type of, you know, say holes that you had in your roster by piecemealing it together or just developing guys to exceed their expectations. It's just this year will be the first year that you can sort of look across the board and at almost every position and be like, all right, well, we're going to have to see something new here. You know, it, it's funny, Rod. I was thinking about this uh, this last night and this morning. You know, when you think about the trajectory for Sark, uh, I kind of compared it to to Max trajectory, and, and just thinking about you know you guys in in two thousand, uh, you're nine and three, uh, and then you get to two thousand one, and really you're you're one win away from playing for a national championship. And uh, under normal circumstances, quote-unquote normal circumstances, you'd say, yeah, to be in what was Mac in year four or five at that point? Yeah, four. So by year four, to to be on the doorstep of playing for a national championship, you'd say, yeah, you're probably, you're probably feeling good. The problem was, had Bob Stoops not won the national championship the year before in, in his second year at Oklahoma, that probably would have been – uh, that would have been more palatable for Texas fans to just look at the big picture like that, but you couldn't. I think it really helps Sark the fact that you know what, uh, A and M is having to reboot their program again at this time when you're you're in this position. Uh, Oklahoma, yeah, they beat you, but you know they're that fan base isn't going to have a ton of patience with Brent Venables, you know, if they're not in the playoffs soon. Because now I think the shoes on the other foot. And they're saying, all right, Sark got Texas into the playoff, BV. What are you going to do? It's just, I didn't know. It's just, I, I tried to look at it from that through that lens. I don't know if you got any thoughts on that one way or the other, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that outside pressure of having one of your chief rivals be a contender, a step above where you are. That, that kind of pressure is not on Sark right now. It's going to the SEC is a different kind of pressure. But just that the, the proximity pressure isn't there for Sark like it was for Mac at the same point. Yeah, I mean, I just think, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I agree with you. Um, yeah, it's just different kind of pressure. I mean, he's still got a lot of pressure on him uh, yeah. going to the SEC and now expectations. So it's just a, it, it, every coach, I'm sure, in Texas can tell you a different story of how, you know, the pressure for them was a little bit different than the coach before. Yeah. And, and yeah, here's, if here's you my look follow at up though. Hold on, hold on real quick, Matt. Rod, here's my follow-up though. Does that matter now as much as it did back then? Like would it even if even if Oklahoma was winning, does it matter that now that you're going into the SEC and you just understand that the the landscape has changed that it, it's not an it might not be an apples to apples comparison. Uh yeah, I think it matters what your rivals do. I think it okay. always will. Yeah. yeah, and that's what I was going to point out with uh, – look at Michigan and Ohio State. I mean, Harbaugh just followed the exact arc that Mac basically did. You know, in year two or three, you were talking about how close they were one game away but came up short. Ohio State had put their foot to the fire, and then it ended up being, you know, Harbaugh won in year nine, Mac won in year eight. But, like, they had had their opposing rival contending for every championship leading up to it to where – that stuff still can exist and goes on in certain places. It's just different pockets of time and unique situations. Like there hasn't been the type of change Sark's going to endure. You didn't Mac and Harbaugh didn't have to endure that. It was just sort of 
set in stone. Now, when you're going to an SEC where you're going to have Atlanta or, you know, your different Georgias and Alabamas also in the mix of your conference, even LSU or whoever else you want to throw in there, it just going to totally change the landscape. But there's always going to be if OU goes in there and wins damn straight, Texas fans are going to want to do better than OU and damn, especially if A&M ever pulls their head out and does something since World War Two. So it was like if that happens, it'll add some fire, but it doesn't necessarily need to. And as we start to look at the SEC, I look, I, I look at it from the, through this lens, and I don't know if you guys have thoughts, feelings on this one way or the other, but I'll turn it over to you after I make this point. You know, if somebody would ask me what's the biggest change for Texas going into the SEC, when you line up against Alabama, Georgia, LSU, uh, even from a from a brand prestige standpoint, like Tennessee or Florida, like you you know what you're getting into. But I think it's the fact that when you look at like you look at Texas, you look at the results of the teams they played this year, and you look at teams with seven or fewer wins, your conference opponents in the seven or fewer win category from one year to the next, it goes from being Iowa State, Texas Tech, TCU, Baylor, and BYU, and you're, you're going to swap those five out with Arkansas, A&M, Florida, Kentucky, and Mississippi State. That to me is the difference is that week in and week out grind to where, man, they're right. It would be like playing in that old big 12 South you played in, but instead of playing, you know, five games, extrapolate that. And that's, that's your eight game conference schedule every week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's, I agree with you. It's just the, uh, like you said, the floor is elevated Yes, much more. And you still have like the old school Big 12, right? You still got your blue bloods that you'd have to knock off your, you know, your Oklahoma. You know, I guess back then Nebraska was yeah. uh, still in that blue blood category. But now the floor is so much higher for Texas. So you really just don't have, you know, they, I mean, Texas has a favorable schedule in the SEC, but you really don't have that breather. There's no yeah. week to exhale. Um, and hell, even this year when Texas, supposedly had some of those weeks they made it a lot more you know competitive and a lot closer than it needed to be like with yeah. the U of H's of the world and teams like that so yeah I'm with you I mean it's it's gonna be a whole new challenge you got I think one of the things I'm more concerned about going into the SEC is can you know the injury rate and can Texas keep up with the the depth they're going to need point. when the injuries are going to pile just because they are be playing a more physical style of football. And like you pointed out, Jeff, it's going to be a week to week thing and teams who may not be great teams. They still may have better line. No, they not may, they will have better lines of scrimmage players. So I do worry about making sure you have enough that term you always throw out there, Jeff, talented depth. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about overhauling the roster and making sure that, you don't have holes, and we talk about holes. We're not just talking about front line guys. We're talking about the depth of the second and the, the third guy too. Because truth is, you may have to play those guys in the yeah. SECL. You got down to your third running back this year. You got down to your, you know, your. You got down to some of your backups, and they rotated some guys. But I mean, that that depth will be tested even more in the SEC. For sure. Yeah, if you look at the reason why some of those teams that you mentioned, Jeff, like uh, say uh, Arkansas or A&M, like what their down seasons are because like when you look at some of those games and how many players they had out, it is a bit of a gauntlet. And like the only time I can think of a gauntlet type schedule, like I know 
like 08 and 09 Texas when you had the whole Big 12 South being pretty strong and then you're playing Missouri and Colorado from the north or there were a few years when K-State right before that in 06 and 07 to where when you happen to pull one or two of the top end guys from the north in addition to your really deep south and that's where Texas having you know your geographical dynamic where you're normally going to be playing the Oklahomas and it sort of just comes down to luck on which teams you pull from the other SEC group some year you can get a light group and play a team like a Kentucky or somebody like that as your major you know maybe get real lucky with the Vanderbilt but some of those years they're going to be the Georgias and Floridas or you're going to not necessarily have control over it it's just how the schedule is going to fall out. By the way, um, let's not beat around the bush. Your non-conference schedule, September 7th, you're visiting the defending national champions. Now, that said, the interesting thing coming off of last night, and Rod, I know you're more dialed into what happens in the National Football League way more than I am. Uh, who's going to be Michigan's head coach for that game? And what the hell is that roster going to look like? I know Michigan is the defending national champion. I don't think they're going to take that big of a step back because of what Jim Harbaugh has done to build that roster, assuming uh, Sharon Moore is the head coach. But, man, that uh, that Michigan thing, I, it could – I don't know what it's – I don't – I can't predict – nobody can predict right now what that Michigan roster will look like, what that situation is going to look like on September 7th. Yep. Yeah, I think, I think Jim Harbaugh is going to leave. He I has think. to, right? Yeah, I just think it's all all the signs are pointing to him leaving. I mean, why would you hire Don Yee uh, as your, you know, agent who's the agent of Tom Brady if you're not thinking about, you know, at least exploring the NFL possibilities? He'll have his pick. I mean, there'll probably be eight jobs maybe open when it's all said and done. I just they just fired Mike Vrabel. I, I just saw that. Yeah. So you're already at, what, six or something like that. So you may get to eight before it's all done and half of those jobs will be considering Jim Harbaugh as the top like candidate for the job. Yeah. Um, some of them have quarterbacks already, like the Chargers. Some potential uh, teams, you can draft your own quarterback and rebuild it. Um, he can be a made man. I mean, he's a made man in college already. Yeah. He can be a made man in the NFL, too. He talked about, you know, how he wanted to sit at the at the, at the table with big the adults table. and the big, yeah. Yeah, the big dogs because yeah. – and his family, his dad has won a national title, and his brother's won a Super Bowl. So it matters to him. And think about, I think now he's thinking about winning both. I mean, he was really close to winning a Super Bowl, and now for his yeah. brother uh, in the Harbaugh Bowl. And, um, you know, he's had really, he had really good teams in the NFL. I think he's thinking about a potential leap to the league, win a Super Bowl. Hell, if you can compete, if you can build it the right way, you may compete for more than one. But win a Super Bowl, and then he's among the Jimmy Johnsons, the – you know, I think Pete Carroll's done it. Oh, Barry Paris Switzer did right. it. Yeah. yeah, but we don't count Barry Switzer. We all know that. Yeah. Yeah, even, Barry, even, Barry would admit, even Barry would admit, like, yeah, that, you know, anybody. A could've, could've Just ask Troy Aikman. Exactly. Like, we all know that. So I think the real ones who built it, both who, yeah. who kind of built their Super Bowl teams and built their national title teams were Pete Carroll and Jimmy Johnson. Um, Jim, and, and like I said, nothing against Barry Switzer, but he didn't build it. Um, he just put in, he just, Took all, he got in the driver's seat when it was on cruise control. Yeah. Uh, and, but I think for Jim Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh will build it, just like he built Michigan to a national title team. You do that, you you become made man. You're in a rarefied air doing things that no one in the history of football has done at the college or the pro level, only a few guys. And I think Jim Harbaugh is good enough to do it. There's no doubt. 
Yeah. It's uh hey, look, Rod, if you're gonna say anything to discredit Barry Switzer on the show, I'm not gonna get in your way. I'm not gonna stop you. So you just you just, <laughs> you go right ahead. You go right no ahead. Offense, but I mean, right, he didn't build it. The right. Russo's got built no. it. Jimmy built hey, it. Pete Carroll built it. We need to refer to him properly as Hall of Fame head coach, ring of honor inductee Jimmy Johnson. Is how yeah, that was it. awesome. Damn right. Hell yeah. Hey, for a generation of Cowboys fans, Tom Landry is their head coach. Tom Landry, product of DBU. So, Rod, you and he have that uh, that chemistry, that synergy going on. But as far as Cowboys coaches, man, in my eyes, for my generation of Cowboys fans, Jim, Jimmy's the GOAT. Jimmy's the GOAT and built one hell of a dynasty. Yeah, I'm right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we're talking about the SEC and – kind of as we start turning the page from 23 to 24, when you look at the returns, man, the Alfred Collins thing is can't quantify how significant that is to get him back for another year. And before we get into like the, the nitty gritty, have you guys put a thumb on or have a theory why like the center at Texas gets crapped on maybe more than anybody on the offensive line or more than anybody in the program? Like Rod, you played with dudes like, like Matt Anderson and Jason Glenn, who were the whipping boy for a while, Dallas Griffin, Chris Hall. Pretty much if you've been a Texas center in the last 20 years and your name was anything other than Lyle Sunline, you pretty much had the fan base hate your existence. Uh, and Jake Majors has dealt with some of that. But, dude, if you're if you're telling me, hey, you've got a 41-game starter uh, going with you to the SEC at center, that that's a big freaking deal, man. I agree, and I think him coming back, you know, announcing that he's coming back, I think it's smart. I mean, you're a center. There's only so much you can do for draft stock, but it made a comeback and going into the SEC, it's really, we just talked about, it's going to be great for Jake Majors. If he is indeed an NFL player, it'll be proven without a shadow of a doubt in the SEC. Yeah. Where you get to play up against uh, NFL caliber defensive linemen week after week, um, and I think you can really kind of show your uh, show your worth as a, as a center there. So, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't know why you made a great point. I don't know why centers are so criticized <laughs> on the 40 acres. They are heavily criticized. You just went through the list there. I don't get it. I really don't know. I have. I had. I honestly got to say, I had a blind spot. I did not realize Texas fans were oh, vehemently man. out against Jake Majors. But I guess I just I'm too much of a nerd and looking at the numbers. He's like our second best pass blocking guy. The entire season, like only behind Kelvin Banks. And like when you think about what centers do, like you even you heard Greg McElroy talking about it on the broadcast, like he yells out every single protection, like some quarterbacks do that stuff, not at the collegiate level, not with when you have somebody like Jake Majors. And that takes such of a burden off of a, somebody like Quinn that's able to just focus on what he thinks he's seeing out there and let the protections be taken care of by a veteran. Honestly, retaining that and having that not be some type of, you know, like a question going into next year, like that's a huge added value that, isn't necessarily weighed in by your everyday fan, but like if that was something that wasn't there and that you didn't have that continuity, that's huge. So hopefully Texas fans understand what a center can do and how impactful they can be, especially when you say, look at the numbers and not only is Jake majors ranked that high in pass blocking, but out of run blocking on the O line, he's the third best. So like, 
he's only behind Christian Jones and Kelvin Banks of the starters. So I say a guy that's a well above average and then maybe has the most important role just mentally in getting the offense set the way that it needs to be. That's valuable. Rod, uh, granted it was a different world in 2001, 2002 than it is now with social media, but were, were Jason Glenn and or Matt Anderson ever cognizant of the fact that there was a decent portion of Texas fans out in gen pop that had no problem just taking a big hairy dump all over their play from week to week. Uh, I mean, I, I, no, no, <laughs> Prior to social media, I'm, I'm not sure if any of these guys were uh, cognizant of it and good. That's probably for the good. Yeah. Uh, yes. Like, I don't know if you ever just walked in the locker room one day and looked at Jason Glenn, like, bro, you need a hug or something. Like you look like you're like, you're having a pretty, a pretty rough go of it lately. Cause somebody on, I don't know what horn fans have been around at the time. Like, just crapping all over Jason Glenn, but I digress. That was just like walking by a frat party. You would hear those things. You wouldn't go on the internet. Well, that's when, and that's when a Dory McCullough has to go pushing down walls or whatever the hell he did. Right, Rod? I don't, I forget that. I forget the nuances of that story, but it was the <laughs> Dory McCullough defending the honor of Chris Sims at a frat house. So I, I, I love it. Uh, um, uh, but talking about, you know, Rod, what have I always said about the SEC? People get tired of me saying it, but what have I always said about the SEC? Line of scrimmage league? The ultimate line of scrimmage league in college football. And, you know, I was, I'm, I'm in the process. We're recording this on a Tuesday, and I'm going to try, I'm trying to have this up this afternoon. Really, people. I mean, I know I say that sometimes and I get sidetracked, but I'm almost done with it. Uh, doing a mock depth chart for next season. And, I just started looking at the numbers. Do you realize that Texas, as of right now, by the time Nate Kibble gets on campus this June, 18 scholarship offensive linemen? Now, some of these guys won't be here by June. There's going to be some attrition in that room. But you talk about just reloading and throwing bodies at the problem. Um, Rod, to your point earlier about talented depth, that's a position group where – They've done a really good job of accumulating talented bodies, but that potential needs to start turning into production to where that number of, okay, you've got six or seven guys that you can depend on. I don't think it's uh, an out-of-this-world expectation to say Kyle Flood needs to be able to look at that room the first day of camp, kind of like Sharon Moore did this year in Michigan and say, hey, I'm looking around this room there's got to be 10 guys in here that on a given snap, I wouldn't think twice about putting them on the field in a high leverage situation. I mean, yeah, honestly, the offensive line should probably be the strength of the team next year when you look at everything and everything that's Oof. returning and coming back. If it's not the strength of the team, that between that and Quinn Ewers, that should be the strength of the team. Yeah. Right. Yep. In terms of what's returning. Because everywhere else, they're taking significant losses. Now, you lose Christian Jones. He's a good player. But you're replacing Christian Jones with a guy with higher upside, potentially. Uh, you're going to bring back the majority of your starters. You're bringing back guys who've already started games and got experience on that offensive line to compete for the spot that Christian Jones is going to vacate. I, if, like I said, if it's not a strength next year, there's a problem. Yeah, there's something, something that's gone wrong with the Pancake Factory. If they're not a strength next season, they right. they should win the Joe Moore Award next season. Truth be told, when you look at the way it's working, I mean, they got that kind of potential. It's one of the best. They've had some of the best offensive line recruiting 
um, acquisition cycles in the last 10 years in recruiting. Uh, Kyle Flood's a hell of a coach. They've had a couple of years now to get that, to get some of those younger guys, some reps in quality spots. Development should be there. Like I said, if it's not a strength next year, then, man, that's going to be a big issue for Texas. Yeah. Do you have anything, Matt? No, I totally agree. Okay. Um, to your point, Rod, I was thinking about it just off the top of my head. It's probably the best Texas has recruited the offensive line since that three-year run from 2001 through 2003, even though Tony Hills was a tight end coming out of high school who kicked inside. Uh, basically, within those three recruiting classes, you recruited – a legitimate two deep offensive line that won you a national championship. This is by far the best Texas has recruited the offensive line over multiple classes since then. I don't think there's any question about that. Yep. Totally agree with you. And I mean, I said, I think they were good this year. It's time for that group to be great. Yeah. It'd be perfect timing for them to be going into the SEC too, because you're going to need it. When we talk about making improvements in the holes in, in the roster, it's not just holes in the roster. To me, it's holes in some situational areas. Namely, we we can't we can't be sitting here, you know, go when Mississippi State comes to town, that's game five for the SEC opener. We can't be talking about an offense that is still struggling in short yardage and goal line situations with the way this offensive line is. We we like we like that stuff can't happen. To your point, Rod, you can't make that leap from from good to great, and we're still talking about the same issues lingering. Yep, agreed. Exactly. Like, especially when and, and again in the Big Twelve, there was really no excuse because you were the biggest offensive line. Yeah, and, and you can make the argument the best offensive line in the Big Twelve in the SEC. There will be more of a challenge, but I expect this group to be more mature. I expect them to be a group that can dominate either in run blocking or pass blocking. Um, and honestly, I expect them more in, in run blocking to be a dominant group. The pass blocking should more take care of itself because you will have a lot of these guys that play together for so long. And Quinn should be better at avoiding sacks, getting rid of the football. Mm -hmm. So pass protection should get better from that respect too. But I want to see them be a dominant run blocking team. Kind of what the mission, what we saw from Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you guys know, I mean, y'all have done this podcast with me for over a decade now. I, I'm harder. I look at through the I look at the offensive line through a more critical lens than probably most people do. I'm I'm very hesitant to compliment that group. But Rod, I don't disagree with anything you said. Dominant, you know, a, an offensive line going into the year that has a legitimate chance to win the Joe Moore Award. Um, yeah, I, I don't think those are outlandish expectations at all. Because if those expectations aren't met. Uh, you're probably your win ceiling probably goes from nine nine to ten plus to probably you're probably an eight and four type team at that point if you don't get that from your offensive line. Yeah, Christian Jones said it was their goal this year. I think they were a semifinalist for the Joe Moore Award. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they have that kind of talent, and they should yeah. at least you know be a finalist next year. So I know winning it is different, but hell, that, I want to say that they are. The national title game, uh, Michigan won it two years prior to Washington winning it this year. So it means something. <laughs> the best old right. line out there. And I think Texas has that kind of ceiling for that. Group. That that group, Rod, needs to carry. When you look at the schedule, that group needs to carry you. Obviously, they got to be big in Ann Arbor on September 7th. And you come back to home, you play UTSA, 
you play ULM, and then you got the SEC opener against Mississippi State. Then you get the bye week, and where you really need that, you need that group to be in a freaking groove at that point because after the bye week, you got the Red River game, and then you got Georgia coming to town. Well, you talk about back-to-back weeks where you're going to need to – if you don't bring the fight, you're going to get it brought to you in a way that you probably are going to be really uncomfortable dealing with. Those are going to be two. That offensive line needs to be hitting a peak. I know you don't want to peak too early, but you need to be really in a groove and lockstep by the time you get to Oklahoma on October 12th. Yep. That's a great point. Totally agree. Because you don't – Yeah, because those – those two right there, those two games, they'll basically be your entire season. And when you were talking about the O-line, when you look at Texas this year on the third and one to three yards, so three or less, you know, Texas averaged 5.27 yards per rush, 33 opportunities. Thing was is they only converted 15 first downs. So on third and short, when you ran the ball, you only got 15 out of the 33 in those scenarios. So you were able to bust some big plays, which makes your yards per rush be a top 20 in the country in that scenario. But your success rate is actually below 500. And against teams like Oklahoma and teams like Georgia, that's where you have to have those start and short. If you're running the ball and you can move them, you can literally dictate the tempo and the way Texas left Alabama with the win. Hey Rod, real quick, I, I want to get your take on this, and I, I'm—you may not have a good answer for me. Um, but we're talking about teams that have been in the CFP that have realized early on that they had holes and they tried to fill them. You know, Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma never really got all the holes filled. I, I think the 2017 game for him, the 2017 Rose Bowl loss to Georgia, that's going to be mm-hmm. the one that on his deathbed he he regrets and wishes he had back. Um, but you know when you look at how Brent Venables is building this Oklahoma team, and I know that Oklahoma team with the, with, you know, portal and, and opt outs, it wasn't the Oklahoma team that we saw points in the regular season uh, in the bowl game, but you have thoughts, Rod, one way or the other on Brent Venables and how he's building Oklahoma kind of in his image out of that Bob Stoops, Jerry Schmidt throwback to a, to 20 years ago type image. Um, Well, no, I mean not really. I don't, I because I haven't done enough research, honestly, to have a, a okay. opinion about it. Should be told. Okay, yeah, that's what I said. I didn't know if you had an answer for me or not. I figured before we close up shop, I figured I'd take a shot in the dark. So, um, it's just it's always interesting to look at. We know how Texas has been getting ready for the SEC. You, you know, Oklahoma has that. You know, they're they're taking the same path too. Uh, you're just wondering how prepared they are, and it's it's weird. Like I don't. I think schematic like schematically is not the I, I want to talk more. I want to get more into PK next week. But schematically, I'm not worried, guys, about Texas making the jump to the SEC uh because the offenses in the SEC run so much space and pace. Most most of your SEC defenses, they're not really out there trying to muck it up. I mean, a lot of them are playing, you know, some form of quarters coverage. Uh, you know, Rod, I, I don't know how much uh the three high safety you've seen in the sec, but I don't know. It just seems like it just seems like the schematic adjustment is it, that's like the the last thing I'm worried about with this program going like how, how is Sark stuff going to work? How's PK stuff going to work? I, I have no, no issues, no concerns about how it's going to work in the sec. Uh, no, I mean, either. I mean, I, I mean, you see everything in the sec now. I mean, you see that their teams have run, they don't run it three high to the extent that they run it in 
the Big 12, where's the identity of some defenses? But yeah, I saw Michigan running three high looks yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. last night versus Washington. I mean, everybody's running. Everybody Georgia. Got, yeah, every, Georgia's got a three high look. Everybody's got it in their playbook now. They mm-hmm. may not be their identity. In the Big 12, it's more of an identity right. for some of these defenses. Right. Like it is for Iowa State or for K-State um, or for even TCU now. But it's like I said, it's something that they'll break out and use. And Sark will see it again. But like I said, Sark has figured out what I think the his his antidote is, what is his best approach is to the three high. So I'm with you. I don't I don't see scheme as a big issue. I see play calling um patience uh with Sark. I see um you know Sark's you know ability to adjust or inability to adjust, you know, more his tendencies and disposition uh as a play caller more so than you know, his scheme. I think their schemes are pretty modern. I think they're actually going to modernize their schemes even more when mm-hmm. you look at versatility of uh, personnel. I think Sark's going to use more personnel groupings like two tailback sets and the 6-0 line package. I saw the 6-0 line package with Michigan against Washington and mm-hmm. Texas yep. didn't use it enough against Washington, in my opinion. So I think you're going to see more formation versatility. Sark is always, he's a, he's a football theorist in the sense that he's always watching his favorite offensive minds and he's stealing concepts. He's a, he's a great thief of concepts. I love that about him. I'll, I'll see something in the NFL, uh, you know, become popular. And I, inevitably I'll see it in Sark's offense. So I, yeah. I, I'm not worried about that. He's pretty, he's really progressive and modern with his offense, keeps it up to date. He's constantly updating his offenses. Um, PK is also has always had really a, a malleable modern offense. I think it's going to get even more modern. I, I do think they're about to shift into, nickels that are essentially safeties yeah that have malleable skill sets that can be interchangeable um that can end up morphing into both i i think that's the route they're going with the recruiting class they're bringing in even if they if jade Barron comes back i think with makuba and Derek williams that's kind of what they're ideally what they're looking for so they yeah. don't get isolated and teams don't try to uh put texas in a bind uh dis- a disadvantage formationally with with safeties that either can't travel or can't cover or nickels that can't travel across the formation and that kind of stuff. They, they're done with that. I think, I think they want to get to the point. It's going to make them look at times kind of like a three safety look the way they're going to rotate and, and be able to morph those guys. But I think it just makes it, it makes, it makes your defense um, a more, um, it makes them capable, your defense capable of solving more problems that way. Mm-hmm. When teams try to put you in a bind formation, I think that's, where they're going to go because teams did that a lot against Texas formation of the boundary killed Texas last year a lot and teams were a lot of three by one sets against Texas they, they're going to continue to see that if their nickel doesn't travel and if their safeties aren't yeah. covered safeties and they if they want certain safeties in the boundary and certain safeties in the field they're just gonna with that rigidity they're going to get in trouble and they're going to be problems they can't solve I think they're, they're trying to evolve past that a little yeah. bit too Right. Yeah, and you said it right there. When your nickel doesn't travel, like that really can be a huge issue because if you have, say, a guy that was so good in Jade Barron, but then you know that he's staying on this side and you can easily just dictate the terms and move over your playmakers into a different side of the slot, like Houston killed Texas doing that, and other teams, good coaches can pick up on those trends and while uh, we were on the topic earlier, I forgot to mention it, but you you talking about personnel groupings there, Rod, reminded me that I saw the EPA numbers come out from the Texas-Washington game, and I just wanted to give them out on the show before we finished up. But the 
uh, pockets of potency that we spoke about <laughs> for Texas offense. And it was in 11 personnel. Texas was six one hundredths of a point added in regards to EPA in the, the 11 personnel package. And 12 personnel package was one one hundredth of a point added. But when you got to 21 personnel, it was 0.32, almost a third of a point added per play. Yeah, the EPA was 0.32 compared to in 12 personnel, 0.01, 11 personnel, 0.02 or 6. And then in 10 personnel was 1.33. That was basically all off of the Whittington pass. But you had 1.33 EPA on 10 personnel and 0.32 EPA in 21 personnel. Those were your pockets of potency in that game. Two-back two personnel, Rod. It, it, it never goes away, man. It all it always applies. If you get if you got it, why not do it, man? It works, man. It works. It works. And you know what else works? This podcast works as we march on with another year of Longhorn Blitz. Thank you guys for uh, the time today and uh, and chopping it up and talking ball. Always, man. This is my favorite time of the week when I get to sit down with you guys and and chop it up. So I hope the audience, I hope we convey that, that can, that comes through the speakers whenever you listen Which to this podcast, awesome. how much fun we have doing this. Uh, but that's going to do it. We'll get back to it next week. Uh, Matt, thanks for everything, man. You're more than welcome. Rod B. I appreciate the time and the knowledge, sir. Anytime brother. Anytime for Matt, for Rod, for everybody at 24, seven sports and horns, 24, seven, that horns, 24, seven podcast feed. You get that anywhere you get your podcasts, just search horns, 24, seven, that's horns, two, four, seven, no dashes, slashes, or spaces, see the feed, click the follow button, get every episode of the Blitz when it drops. And thanks to Matt, get all of our archives. Our classic interviews and shows are available on the Longhorn Blitz SoundCloud page. Yep, just type in Longhorn Blitz. For the Horns 24-7 family, for the Longhorn Blitz family, I'm Jeff Howe. Thank you so much for downloading and listening, and we will catch you again on the next episode.